G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. We're in a series called The Trouble with Christianity. And what we're saying is there are still a lot of people who are very open to a relationship with Jesus. They, they've investigated the coherency of the Word of God, but there's still a few things that they still can't get their head around. So we are dealing with these. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me want to dance and sing with every single breath I breathe. I will bring this offering. You are my wonder. You bring the wonder. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and this is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff has another message in his series, The Trouble with Christianity. It's a series looking at some big questions that many have about Christianity. Today's topic asks, why does God kill innocent people? To help address this topic, Pastor Jeff is looking at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Romans chapter 3. No matter where you are in your faith, we hope this gives you greater understanding about God and Christianity. Here's Pastor Jeff. I want you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn over to two passages of Scripture, Deuteronomy 7 and Romans 3. And remember, we're in a series called The Trouble with Christianity. And what we're saying is there are are still a lot of people who are very open uh, to a relationship with Jesus. They've investigated the coherency of the Word of God, how it's consistently held together and its themes and its purpose. Uh, They are impressed with the good news of the gospel, the grace that Jesus comes to bring, but there's still a few things, primarily because of cultural uh, situations, that they still can't get their head around. So we are dealing with these. Now, I want to read to you Deuteronomy 7, a passage that is seldom read in church. And here's how it goes. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, and then verse 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them, show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. When we were doing ministry in New Zealand, I was asked to uh, speak at a camp in a place called Matamata on behalf of Youth for Christ. They had actually asked me to come down and, and do some lectures on the God of the Old Testament. And after the lectures were finished, a young student approached me outside after it was all over and he said, Pastor Jeff, I hope you can help me because I just cannot get past the Old Testament God who commands the people to slaughter everyone, people, animals, including women and children. And then he pulled out his Bible and he read what I consider to be the cousin to Deuteronomy 7, 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, where God says to the people of Israel, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And then in, in quite disgust, he raised his head, looked up and said, Jeff, I just cannot believe in a God like that. How can I be expected to worship a God who commands the slaughter of women and children? Now, how do we respond to this? Because it's a fair question and it's one that's a common objection to Christianity. So I want to address it under five headings. Number one, was God just when he commanded the annihilation of a specific people group in the Old Testament? Two, are love and judgment incompatible? Three, why is this generation so opposed to an angry God? Four, if God smites evildoers, why can't we? And five, finally, why, what difference, rather, what difference does Jesus make in all of this? So let's hit the ground running. Number one, was God just when he commanded the annihilation of a specific people group? Well, the first question that comes is, who are these people called the Amalekites and the Canaanites? Who are they? And if there's any power in history, any nation to which we could compare the Canaanites and Amalekites, it would be the Third Reich of Germany, Hitler's relentless and cruel Germany. In fact, the sole purpose of the Amalekites was to annihilate genocide against the Jews. They launched this killing spree when the Israelites were in the desert, many, many years before God gives this command. They would actually follow the Israelites as they made their way into their journeys, and they would pay close attention to those who were being left behind, not on purpose, but to the weak and the disabled and the elderly. And as they were separated from the pack, they would sneak out of the bushes and the caves and the holes in the ground and basically annihilate those who were weak. Not only that, but the Amalekites and Canaanites were notorious for burning their children on the altar of Molech. That's right. They were sacrificing their newborns and their young children on molten altars of fire. Now, just quickly, do you remember Hitler's words concerning the children of Germany? He said this, and I quote, I want to raise a generation of young people devoid of conscience, imperious, relentless, and cruel. So Hitler says, I want to raise an entire generation, generation after generation, who are devoid of conscience. They don't have shame. They don't have guilt. He says, I, I want to raise children who can slaughter Jews without any hesitation. And a lot of people said that'd be impossible, but he succeeded by the brainwashing of generation after generation. So in, in effect, 
Hitler was able to raise generations of natural born killers. The Amalekites and the Canaanites did this for over 400 years. They took the surviving children out of these conflicts with Israel and trained them to be killers, to commit all kinds of atrocities. And the Amalekites and Canaanites were bent on the destruction of all society. So God took action not merely for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the entire known world. Now, just before we continue, let me, let me ask you something. Do you think, has there ever been a time that you think, you know, if God is truly loving and just, he would have annihilated Hitler and the Germans before they were able to commit all the atrocities they committed. Does that ever cross your mind? Because I often hear people say, if God is so powerful, why did he not just annihilate Hitler before all the bloodshed got started? Think of how many lives God could have spared. He could have made sure that one of the many assassination attempts was successful. Bonhoeffer, Valkyrie. God could have destroyed all the Hitler youth so as to stifle racism in future generations that would be impervious and cruel. So do you see the tension there? If you, if you have no problem with God doing that to Hitler in the Third Reich, why do you think you have a problem with God doing that with the Amalekites in the Old Testament? And I've said before, we place God in a no-win scenario. On the one hand, we say, I can't believe in a God who stands by and watches evil without doing anything about it. Where's God? If he's truly loving, he would bring down justice. And then that same person or same crowd, maybe the same day, will say something like, I just can't believe in a God who punishes evildoers. I just can't believe in a God like that. I believe in only a God of love. So if you have no problem with God doing that with Hitler, why not the Amalekites in the Old Testament? And the answer is very simple. Because God's justice is not your real problem. And because you're not God, you don't have the wisdom or the power to make those decisions, who lives and who dies. And I can tell you that your real problem, if you just be honest, and that's all I'm asking, I'm being very honest here with this passage. We've read it, we've discovered it. I'm asking you to be honest where you are, that perhaps your problem is not with the justice or the love of God, but something far more cynical. You've been programmed by the generation in which you're now living. Now, just quickly before we go on, something else is seldom mentioned here. And that is that in this situation, where God commands the annihilation of the Canaanites and Amalekites, the women and children were always given the option to leave. It's the code of Israel, the code that he gives God, or God gives his people rather. So any women and children who stayed behind did so out of incredible hate and animosity of their perceived enemy. And if you fled, you were spared. Let me give you two quick examples. In Joshua 6, the Bible talks about the destruction of the Canaanites in Jericho. But again, the reason God had the Israelites invade Jericho is because their wickedness reached such a level that God said he was nauseated by their depravity. They were into brutality and cruelty and incest and bestiality and cultic prostitution and once again, child sacrifice. They made it their sole pursuit to annihilate, to commit genocide against Israel. But even in that situation, God told the Israelites, if anybody repents, if anybody admits the evil nature of their people and culture, they are to be spared. The example is Rahab. Rahab, part of Jericho, was not judged with the other people. She recognized her sin, repented, and was spared. Think about Nineveh, the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah understood how depraved the Ninevites really were, 
And actually he resented the fact that God would even offer them the chance to be forgiven. They were a horrible and wicked people and culture. So after God gave Jonah a tour of the inside of a great fish and then the fish regurgitated Jonah out onto the beach, Jonah felt inspired and finally went and preached repentance to the evil Ninevites. And what happened? When they heard the good news of God's mercy, they repented and were spared. Which leads me to say this. Listen carefully, it's on the screen here. God's purposes in each of these instances was to destroy the corrupt nation because the national structure was inherently evil, not to destroy people if they were willing to repent. In fact, God states this emphatically in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, he says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God much prefers that you live and that you do the good. And that's the reason that under the rules of conduct, no matter how evil a given people were, God gave the Israelites specific instruction. First, go into the camp and make an offer of peace. And anyone who accepts it, they'll be saved and forgiven. So number one, was God just when he commanded the annihilation of a a specific people group? Absolutely. And I think down deep inside, you know that. Two, let's hone in on the real issue now. Are love and judgment incompatible? Can these two attributes, love and judgment, coexist? And I think, again, if you think about it and you think it through, you'll say, yes, they can. And I think deep inside, you know it. When I was doing ministry in New Zealand, I had a good uh, buddy of mine that was actually the principal of a local high school. And I noticed one weekend he was really struggling. So I went up to Colin. I said, Colin, you know what's going on? He explained to me a situation that was going on at his school. He said, there's a rather large, gifted young man, very strong, very muscular. It looks like he's a man among boys, but he's also a bully and he has a lot of anger. So he's bullying half the school, half the young men. And we just don't know what to do about it. So you have a hundred boys, young boys coming to school, terrified of this guy that today will be the day that he picks on them. So he took the issue to the school board and he said, I think we need to expel this young man and get him some help. And there was outcry. No way, you can't expel him. You may scar him for life. The shaming and canceling culture 20 years ago. He came back to church the following weekend, told me what happened. And I said, look, I want you to try something. I want you to go back to the school district And I want you to say, wait a minute. I appreciate that you have love and concern for the bully, but where's your love and concern for these hundred young men who are terrified to come to school every day? Love is not the absence of justice. Love is justice with a care and concern about all involved. Expel the young man and get him help. If you're concerned about him, expel him, get him away from these hundred young men who are terrified to come to school, get him counseling and help. But at the same time, Make sure that you don't give more sympathy for the perpetrator than for the victim of the crime. Love and justice go hand in hand. In fact, if you do nothing, that's called apathy. And apathy is worse than hate. And I think deep down inside, we know this. Becky Pippert has written a wonderful book called Hope Has Its Reasons. Listen to how she states this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. 
What is she saying? She's saying that the Bible says that God's wrath flows out of his love for all humanity. He's angry at evil and justice because evil and injustice wounds people who've been created in the image of God. So one, was God just when he commanded the annihilation of a specific people group? Absolutely. And I think we know that. Are love and judgment incompatible? Not at all. I think we know that too. Now, here's the third question. Why then is this generation, and I do mean this generation, so opposed to an angry God? And yes, God gets angry. Let's be honest. Let's not hide this. We can call it righteous indignation. Nevertheless, God is a wrathful God. He's a God of love and justice, but he's also a God of judgment and wrath. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 describes Jesus on the day of the Lord. So this is the day of judgment when we'll all stand before God and give an account for the lives we've lived. And in verse 16 of chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, from the wrath of the lamb. This is the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. For the great day of their wrath has come. The one who sits on the throne, God, his son, seated at his right hand, Jesus, Their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, our culture looks at that and uh, is appalled. Divine judgment? I think it's perhaps Christianity's most offensive doctrine to the present generation. And the question I've been asking for a long time is why? What changed? Because divine judgment as a doctrine has been taught, respected, and understood by hundreds of years of generations before us. In fact, still today in many parts of the world, it is still the judgment of God, respected, taught, and understood. In fact, there are many cultures in our world that still believe that in order for this world to make any sense at all, there's gotta be some form of justice attached to it. So what changed? Now, this this is a topic that is really concerning, and I'm trying to work my way through it as well. It has made perfect sense to so many generations in the past that God is holy and that although he is patient, kind, long-suffering, he's also just. And everyone eventually must give an account for the way they've lived their lives. Paul said this in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And he says this to Christ followers. In Hebrews 9, 27, it has been appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. So for many generations before you and me, and still in many cultures today, this world only makes sense if there is a final day of judgment where everything that has been exacted on humanity and culture in the category of evil and wickedness will one day be made right. That Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Pol Pot, and every other evil, wicked dictator will one day stand before God and justice will roll like a river. That rapists and sex traitors and pedophiles, those who abuse and oppress the weak, the blue collar, the white collar criminals, they will all stand before God. We used to take comfort in the reality that one day everything's gonna be set right. So again, what happened? Now, Robert Bella's influential work called Habits of the Heart helped me to some degree and I think it will help you. He speaks about modern day culture and its expressive individualism. He says that it dominates our culture. And he says 80% of Americans agree with the following statements. Number one, 
An individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. He goes on to say, the most fundamental belief in American culture is that moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. In other words, I decide for me what is ultimate reality, what is true, what is right, what is wrong. In other words, he says, our culture has no problem with a God of love who supports me no matter what I decide or how I live. Now, again, I really want to understand this because to the past generations, this is unfathomable because it's unlivable. What happens when you come up against somebody that disagrees with your form of right and wrong? And it conflicts. C.S. Lewis, in a work called The Abolition of Man, helps bring this together. And basically, he helps us understand the difference between the past and the modern view of reality. Now, this is a little heavy, but it's short. Stay with me. Lewis attacks our smug belief that ancient people believed in magic, and then science came along and supplanted it. He says there was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The high noon of magic was the 16th and 17th centuries. That's the exact time that modern science was developing as well. So he said the same cause gave rise to both science and magic. Let me quote, the serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died. The other was strong and thrived. That would be science. But they are twins. They are born of the same impulse. The impulse is for us as humanity to discover a new approach to moral and spiritual reality. He goes on to say, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique. And both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious. What's he saying? He's saying we are living in a generation that desires to force both natural reality and spiritual reality to conform to us rather than we conforming to it no matter how dastardly our deeds become. In the past, there was a moral order of the universe. So if you violated the metaphysical, the spiritual consequences were just as severe as if you violated physical reality. Now, let me give you a very, you know, I I risk this because it's a very plain example, but I think it will help us understand. You know, if you go and you jump off a five-story building, you've just violated physical law and you're gonna go splat right on the pavement. You can't jump off of a five-story building. You violated the law of physics. On the other hand, if you perpetually lie and deceive and you have no character and integrity, then there is spiritual or soul disintegration because you violated the spiritual law, not the natural, but the spiritual. The path in the past to wisdom was to learn to live in conformity with the unending spiritual law, spiritual realities, and the present day natural physical reality. And wisdom rested largely on developing qualities of character like humility and courage, compassion, discretion, self-control, loyalty. Now, modernity, Lewis says, has reversed this. And this helps us understand why we are where we are today. 
ultimate reality is not seen so much as a supernatural order, but as a natural order, and that is malleable, which means we can shape the natural world now through the advancement of science. We have the ability to shape the natural order to conform to our hopes, wishes, and desires. So if we can do that with a natural order, says Lewis, why can't we do that with a spiritual order? So instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to control and shape reality to fit our desires. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. We want in our human experience, the perpetrator of crimes to pay and pay hard. It's human nature. There's an overwhelming desire for revenge. Revenge movies are number one sellers. And it's only prevention of retribution is to know that God will one day have the final say in human history. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.